Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PodMed Index quarterly journal edited by the Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is part of our special series devoted to the 50 Women at Yale 150 Initiative. This year-long initiative commemorates the 50th anniversary of co-education in Yale College and the 150th anniversary of women students at the university. I am your co-host, Wachi Lee, a second-year graduate student in chronic disease epidemiology. And I'm your co-host, Felicia Hong, a first-year graduate student in environmental health sciences. So today, we're joined by Dr. Lisa Sanders, an associate professor in general, general internal medicine at the Yale School of Medicine and writer of the popular diagnosis column for the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Dr. Sanders. Thank Hi. you so much for joining us today. <laughs> so you've had a very multidisciplinary career thus far. You were an English major in undergrad, an Emmy award-winning producer at CBS News, and now as a clinician and author, your New York Times column inspired the hit medical TV series House and the new Netflix Diagnosis series. So to start off with, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey thus far? Well, you pretty much summarized all there is to say, all there is to know about me. Um, I didn't, you know, some people know they want to be a doctor from day one. I was not one of those people. And in fact, you know, I went to college. Let me just reveal my age this way. I went to college in the 70s. And at that time, people were dying to go to medical school. Men were dying to go to medical school because it was a way to avoid the draft. Um, and the Vietnam War was still going on. Not by the time I got to college, but certainly that was there was still a lot of forward momentum in that direction. And so the people who were applying to medical school were, to me, as unappealing as people can get. <laughs> you know, I was uh, a humanities person from way back, loved plays, loved movies, loved novels, loved poetry, loved music. Um, I was good at math and science, but you know I didn't I didn't find them. You know they were they were fun and interesting, but they weren't nearly as compelling to me as all of the arts or any of the arts. And the people who I was under, an undergraduate with who were planning to go to medical school, they were so focused as they had to be on getting into medical school that they didn't know anything about novels or arts. They never went to the movies. I mean, like, I thought, who could stand to be around these people for the rest of your life? Um, and it turned out, me. <laughs> but at the time, it just seemed very unappealing. Um, and it wasn't until I started covering medicine as a television producer that I thought, oh, well, this is really interesting, in part because medicine is not about – medicine it involves science, but it's not – I mean, fundamentally, it seems to me a humanistic way of thinking and, and working in the world. This is not a hard science. This would be the softest possible science. <laughs> um, Science is important. Look, you have to be able to evaluate studies. You have to be able to understand why things are connected. All that stuff is really important. I'm glad I learned it, all that stuff. But I didn't know then that 
medicine was about human beings um, and all their crazy complexity, physically, psychologically, emotionally, everything. So you kind of touched about how humanities and medicine are kind of similar, but I want to know if there are if you have any similarities between journalism specifically and medicine that kind of helped you through your journey? Since oh, you, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> medicine is like journalism, except you don't have to be embarrassed when you ask embarrassing questions. You know, when, as a journalist, when you ask some questions, you know, I don't, I don't know about other journalists, but, you know, my heart sinks when I have to rush up to somebody who's just had undergone something terrible and go, how do you feel? (laughs) (laughs) And yet, you know, when somebody comes into my office and something terrible has happened to them, then I can ask, honestly, how do you feel? How are you doing? How's that work? You know, how are you able to deal with this? And that's an appropriate question. That's an important question. So to me... Medicine is journalism with all the embarrassment removed. That's a great way to put it. In terms of when you were switching your career from journalism to medicine, was there anything specific that prompted that? When I started at CBS, I saw that there were people, this is something I'd never seen before, there were people who were counting the days, the months, the years, until they could retire. And I thought, wow, that sounds terrible, you know, to spend all of the best hours of your day doing something that you can't stand. I never wanted to do that. I thought as soon as I have just a a flicker of, huh, I wonder what else there is, I'm going to go do something else. And so I had that flicker. I just thought, oh. Um, And when I thought that, I thought, okay, what else would I like to do? You know, I I, – I enjoyed television, but really television news to make, just like television news to watch, it's exciting without being interesting. Um, And so when that got to be not interesting for me anymore, then I thought, okay, what else can I do? And I had lots of other options. You know, I mean, it's not like I said, you know, med school or bust. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to take all these pre-med classes because by then, you know, nothing I had taken in college would have counted anymore. I'm going to take all these classes and, um, and see if it works. In the meantime, I, I did leave my job at CBS because we were gearing up for the first Gulf War. And to do that, we were all required to work 18-hour shifts you know what, if I worked an 18-hour shift, I wouldn't have had time to do my homework. (laughs) And I just couldn't, you know, I had already decided to try to go to medical school. So I thought, okay, I'm going to leave CBS News and go do something else. So I became a freelancer, and I ended up working at all the networks um, and had a great time. So if I didn't get into medical school, plan B, more of same, you know, keep on working in television, um, and television news, because there there were other things I could have done. It seemed like a big leap. You know, I could have. <laughs> I had done some magazine television. You know, um, I had worked on a show that doesn't exist anymore called West Fifty Sixth Street. I'd worked on Sixty Minutes. 
a little bit. Um, and so I, I thought I could do that. Or I could teach journalism. I had gotten a job um, at Columbia Journalism School teaching television journalism. And I thought, well, that was really fun. And it, and it is fun. Seeing somebody get something, understand something that they really didn't understand, like storytelling. It seems so to some people, it seems so obvious how you tell a story. And to other people, not so much. Um, so trying to help people understand what a, a story is, uh, you know, that was fun. Um, so I, I, th I had other options. But I was really, really glad <laughs> that I got into medical school. <laughs> so compared to journalism, what specifically about medicine interested you? You know, I had this experience when I was a journalist. Um, I was working with this doctor, Dr. Bob Arnott, and uh, he was a doctor, but he didn't love medicine. So we did a lot of sports medicine because that's what he really liked. He was a real athlete. And so we were doing something about whitewater rafting, and Bob was – we were rehearsing because it was going to be a live shot. We were rehearsing, and Bob was in the raft – coming down the, down the river, and we were on the shore filming him, and he was practicing his, you know, sort of riff. And suddenly, he just disappeared from the little tiny monitor that I was looking at. He just disappeared. Um, and I thought, where is he? And so I watched the monitor, and the cameraman's like swinging all over the place trying to find him, and they found him. He was on the rocky shore and he was pulling this elderly woman out of the rapidly moving waters of this river. And he laid her on her back. And then he did something I had never seen in real life. I'd only seen, you know, in dramas, which was CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And she came back. I mean, she was this very, yeah, she was a woman probably, I don't know if I would think she was so old now, but <laughs> she was probably in her 70s. She was like a white-haired lady, sort of... Um, overweight and, you know, not somebody you would expect to see whitewater rafting. <laughs> um, and, you know, he saved her life. And I thought, I thought, uh, you know, I will probably never save anybody's life in television. Now, it's not like my whole life I had wanted to save people's <laughs> lives because then medicine would have been obvious to me a lot earlier. I had never thought that that might be what I wanted to do. It had never crossed my mind. But, and it's not like I thought right then and there, okay, no matter what, I'm going to medical school. I thought, huh, that's interesting. But that's, that's why when I thought, what else would I like to do? Medi medical school came across my brain. Because um, I thought, wow, that would be interesting to save somebody's life. And it has been. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, you mentioned previously that your perspective on people applying to medical school back in the day were typically men who were trying to avoid the draft. Do you think that experience with the white water rafting shifted your perspective? Or was there a specific moment that you thought, oh, medicine is more than just that? It was talking to doctors, you know. So even though at the time most doctors were still men, um, they were far more interesting than I expected them to be um, because, you know, I, my only contact with them was in college when they were, you know, these science nerds. <laughs> 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 um, you know, so I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. They're interesting. 
medicine is interesting, I, th things that I'd never thought before. So, it, you know, it was just meeting doctors and recognizing that they were so much, they had become so much more than these, these sharp arrows pointed towards medical school, you know, ready to cut through anything to get there. You know, uh, it was, it was different. They were different. Mm -hmm. In that journey, did you have any moments where you doubted yourself just because of the demographic of the doctors and having them all being men? Was it ever hard? Well, my class was the first class at Yale to have 50% women. So, no. <laughs> no, I felt really right at home. I mean, I was mm -hmm. so much – I was, you know, more than a decade older than all the other, all the other kids in medical school. Um, but, you know, it didn't matter to me. I, you know, and it didn't seem to matter to them. Mm -hmm. I was already married. Um, so I, it's not like I was um, looking for a husband or <laughs> a, a significant other. I, had, I came fully equipped. So, uh, you know, so I was, I, you know, I made some great friends in medical school. I'm still friends with many of those people. Um, uh, and medical school you know, there were the first two years, they've changed it now, so it's now only a year and a half, I guess. But the first two years were hard because there was a lot of sitting in classrooms. And the way – here's something that, that some of my teachers are not going to want to hear. Uh, <laughs> the way you get to teach is just by breathing. It's not like you have to – and knowing – it's not like you have to be a good teacher. <laughs> and what they often did was talk about whatever it is that they were doing research on, which is great. But like when I started immunology, this was particularly true about immunology. We had this great guy, but he was, you know, a world leader in immunology. And so in my very first class of Immunology 101, we were deep into it. And I'm like, after this first lecture, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to get a book that's different than this book. <laughs> One that's like, and they make it, Immunology for Dummies. You know, I mean, I was like right there <laughs> um, because I needed, I knew I needed to understand this. Um, and Yale has never required their basic science teachers to be good teachers. Um, on the other hand, Yale medical students always do extremely well on step one. Um, you, know, the, you know, they usually rank in the top three medical schools um, after taking that test. So I'm sure that Yale feels like that's not a problem. But I'll tell you what's missing in that is they're under good teaching the connection between what you see in the bed and what you learned in those classrooms would be clearer. You know, as it turns out, you know, so much of what you learn to go to medical school and in medical school, you never get to draw on because nobody helps you make those connections. Sometimes you don't, it doesn't need that much help, but it would be great if helping people understand medicine was also part of helping people understand the science underneath medicine. Um, so, I mean, we didn't, that's never been valued at Yale. And they tell you, we are not here to help you pass the boards. We're not here to help you become better doctors. That's on you. We're here to help you see 
where we are in medicine and what, where we're going. Okay. <laughs> you can do that. Uh, I can, I, you know, I mean, obviously we all figure, you know, the great thing about being smart is that no matter what you get, you can work with it. So, I mean, I, I, there were some dark times in med school, not because I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have come here. That never crossed my mind. It was, oh, really? <laughs> so... So as a student experiencing some of those difficulties, were there any coping mechanisms that you specifically had to deal with them? No. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> let me just say, once you've had a job and a career, you know, this is, this is just school. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You can get an F and you'll have to repeat the class. True. Nobody's <laughs> going to die if you do badly in class unless you don't ever make it up and, and, and miss something important. But, you know, I mean, it's just... It's, I just knew that I could do it. And I had never had a 40-hour-a-week job since starting. And so when I came to medical school, I thought, okay, I'm just going to work 40 hours a week. But every week, every day, I'm going to work a good eight-hour day doing my schoolwork. And then I'm not going to do any more unless I have to. (laughs) But it turned out 40 hours a week was way more than anybody else was putting in. Um, so <laughs> it, it worked out just fine. During your time during medical school, do you have any mentors, anyone you looked up to that helped you guide you through that journey? Well, you know, my thesis advisor was a guy who was totally terrifying. When I, when I John Forrest Sr. had recommended that I do my research with Alvin Feinstein, and I had seen Alvin at work and he was absolutely terrifying. Um, he was uh, he taught um, the examination of the heart and clinic introduction to clinical medicine. And so whoever came before him at the le- whoever gave the lecture before him ran over a little bit. And so Alvin just like blasted him. I'm like, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> so I was terrified to meet him. Um, but I met him, and he was so great. He was totally a science plus humanities guy. Before he had gone to medical school, he had been in this uh, bluegrass band that performed all over the country. You know, I mean, he really was a, a total liberal arts guy. And I, I, and he had a wicked sense of humor. I mean, I just sat in his office and just laughed and laughed and laughed. He was a he was a brutal editor and a very good editor. So uh, you know, once I turned in my thesis and it came back and it was so covered with red marks because at the time, of course, you got edited on paper, um, and it was terrifying. But you know, it was a much better thesis after his edits. And you know, anybody who's a writer knows that nothing is better than a good editor. That's very fair. In terms of your mentors and people you looked up to, did you ever feel like there was a lack of female representation in that? I came from television where everybody was a man. No, I felt, you know, know, what else is new? But, you know, I have to say my other two big idols in med school were Frank and Peggy Bia. Um, 
Frank uh, is an internist um, who uh, he's an infectious disease doctor. His wife, Peggy, is a nephrologist. She works in transplant. You know, and the two of them were so great. I went my first semester uh, as a med student. They had a panel discussion on, like, how to be married and stay married in medical. I don't, I don't really remember what it was about. But the two of them were so great together. Like, they're both from, um, they're both from, I think, one's from Queens and one's from the Bronx. I can't tell, or Brooklyn. You know, they're from two different non-Manhattan boroughs in New York City. And they have slightly different New York accents. And they're very, very comfortable disagreeing with each other (laughs) and laughing with each other. And I just thought they were so great. And actually, I thought, oh, this is how long ago this was. There was this new radio show on called um, Car Talk. And it was these two brothers. um, it's It's not on the air anymore because one of the brothers has died. But it was these two brothers talking about uh, repairing cars. <laughs> One was a PhD from MIT um, who had had left science and left academics and opened a car repair shop because he and his brother had loved working on cars. And so the two of them, people would call on the phone and say, my car goes eh, 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 when I'm turning <laughs> left or something. And he would make them make the sounds. <laughs> and then they would discuss what the problem could be. And they would sometimes disagree, but, you know, come up with a, a diagnosis and a suggested treatment. And then the, uh, and, and I, I loved that. And I thought, and it, to me, it was obviously applicable to medicine. And so I wanted I wanted uh, Frank and Peggy to do a car talk radio show. <laughs> I didn't I didn't get anywhere with it because I just got busy as a medical student, so it was just too hard. But I thought oh, that would be fun. It's not too it late. would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so on the flip side, you are currently a clinician educator in the primary care internal med- medicine residency program. So what has it been like being a mentor yourself? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's been fun. I, I like teaching. Um, you know, I like, um, you know, the great thing about being a teacher is people like believe what you say. Like, oh, really? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no, I mean, it's television is all about teaching. I mean, I've always been interested in teaching. Um, and this is just a different way. You know, I don't know that I'm I don't know that I would call myself a mentor as much as I would call myself a teacher. Do you have anything specific in terms of advice for people who are seeking these mentor-mentee relationships, how to potentially present yourself or how to act around other people? I think that, you know, I, I treat – so when you're a television producer, you work with a lot of different people with a lot of different – levels of experience. So I was often the least experienced person on the team. But I'm the producer. So I found the story. I set up the shoots. I knew who we were going to interview. So I might not have experience, but I, I knew, but I was in charge because I'm the producer. Um, but I would also have to get, a, I would have to figure out a way to relate to a cameraman who's been a, a cameraman for CBS News longer than I had been alive. You know, so you have to figure out ways to treat people with respect and yet exhibit a kind of authority. 
And so I learned that the hard way. Is there an easy way? I learned that the way you learn everything by doing it right sometimes and getting it wrong sometimes. Um, so I think that as long as you respect people for what they bring to the table, then that's going to be useful. Then that sets up the kind of relationship that you need. Um, I'm not assigned people, so people, you know, I mean, I am. I'm there attending when I, you know, when when we're in teams. But you know, most of the time, the people that I teach are interested in being taught. And so once you have that, it's fine, as long as you respect what they're bringing to the table. I think that's the most important thing. And also respect yourself and what you have to say. Yeah, definitely. So I know you mentioned that you wear a lot of different hats. You have a lot of different roles. How has been? How has your experience been in managing all of these different roles? Oh, it's, I'm terrible. Everybody's terrible at this. <laughs> this is just one of – everybody I know goes, oh, I have to start saying no more often. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I've really got to learn how to set my priorities. I mean, this is the constant refrain that people have as adults. It's just either – you have a very, very simple life, God bless you, <laughs> um, or you're constantly n- not quite good enough no matter what. You know, I mean, you're always struggling to get it all in. Um, you know, I mean, the hard, it's not hard to say no to things that you don't want to do. It's hard to say no to things that you would like to do, but maybe it's not the right thing for you or, you know, Somehow, that's that's the hardest part. And until you learn how to do those things, until you learn how to say no, and I'm still, every year, my New Year's resolution is say no more often. You know, I mean, it's not, I'm not really interested in saying no. I'm really interested in is doing as much as I can for as long as I can. And when you do that, when you, that's fundamentally how you feel, you know, it's an ugly sight. <laughs> I mean, it's ugly. The balancing. There is no balance. I mean, balance makes it sound like you're a ballerina on point with your leg, you know, with leg extended, arms out in an arabesque. That's what you think of balance is. Let me just say, none of you have ever seen this, but the, there used to be a show on television called The Ed Sullivan Show. And he would have all these crazy people who had all these weird talents. But my favorite one of these people was a guy who used to spin plates on these sticks. They're like pool cues or something. (laughs) I don't know how he got the sticks to stay upright, but he would spin the plates on top of these. And he would have like five or six or seven plates. And, you know, one would start to wobble (laughs) and go and get it spinning faster. And every now and then one would fall down and break. And he would just replace it. That's what a real life looks like. You know, you're running around a a little bit crazed (laughs) uh, all the time trying to make sure that none of the plates fall. And and every now and then you have this perfect moment of everything being – but it doesn't last long. So, I mean, that's how I think about balance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you make sure to make time for yourself? I know you mentioned you recently have a new puppy in your house. Well, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, you have to take care of yourself first. I mean, I always exercise. Um, you know, it's the only way. I, so I learned about exercise when I quit smoking. When I was 25, I quit smoking, and I realized um, that's hard. I was <laughs> smoking for a lot of things. And so I started running. And, you know, I've been uh, a devoted exerciser ever since. Um it's not that I'm taking time 
out for myself. It's the, that's just one more part of that complicated life that you have. You know, I mean, my life has gotten a lot simpler because both of my children, um, two daughters, both of them have graduated from college and, like, moved into their own apartments and have, like, careers and stuff. And it's like, oh, okay, that just simplified my life dramatically. <laughs> Suddenly, they're responsible for their own d- dentist appointments. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> doesn't mean I don't have to nag them, but at least I'm not responsible for making them. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it's gotten a lot easier. So that's why we got a dog. We had, you know, sort of the room in our lives. And our old dog, who I loved so much, he died when he was 15 about a year ago. So we're ready. We were finally <laughs> ready to love again. So. So it's not so much making time for yourself, but just considering your own well-being to be part of just all the other stuff you do in your life. I would say that the hardest thing about medical students or the hardest thing about people who end up going to medical school is their whole life they've been doing – they've been following other people's well-established goals, right? You – when you're – you know what you have to do to get into medical school. You know, there are certain classes that you have to take. You have to get a certain grade. You have to take these certain tests. You have to have these certain skills. Residency is the first choice you get to make. I mean, you don't really get to make a choice about the medical school. You go to the best medical school you get into. Um, so residency is the first real choice you make. But even after that, once you're in residency, figuring out what you actually want, figuring out what makes you actually happy is going to be the most important thing about how you move forward in life. You know, a lot of doctors just hate their first job. Why is that? Because they have no idea what they like, what they want from their day-to-day life. They've just been keeping their head down, moving forward. So I would, you know, I think that one of the things that I didn't have to struggle with, but that I see lots of my colleagues or saw lots of my colleagues struggling with is paying attention to the things that make you happy and the things that drive you crazy. Because those are the two (laughs) things that are going to help you pick what you want, how you want to spend the rest of your life. So... I can't remember why, how I got on with that, but, <laughs> but self-care is certainly part of that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So when you do feel overwhelmed, is that how you def- how you deal with your stress or are there By exercising? Ways? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I exercise. I, you know, I – and when you feel overwhelmed, the thing that makes you feel you, – you have to identify what's making you crazy and then just deal with that. You know, it's not like, oh, I have so much work. We all have so much work all the time. Usually it's something that's stressing you out for whatever reason. Um, you feel inadequate to the job or you feel like you haven't done a good job or, you know, I don't know, it, it, different things, you know. But when you're feeling that overwhelmed feeling, this is what I tell my children, you know, think about what is it exactly that's got your heart racing? What exactly is waking you up in the middle of the night? Stop and think about that and try to tease out what of all this stuff that you've taken on is making you the most anxious and then fix that. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you have two daughters. Having a mom who has such diverse experience, have you been able to guide them? Have they considered medicine nah. or journalism? <laughs> <laughs> well, one's a journalist. One's a writer. Um, one is sort of 
incorporated. So the the journalist is a very successful journalist. She's a fantastic writer and a, an incredible reporter, so much better than me. But uh, my husband is a really good writer also. Um, so she really takes after him, I think, in all of that. Um, and she's awesome. She writes for the Daily Beast. Tarply hit. She's fantastic. Um, my other daughter, the younger one, um, wants to go to law school. I, I totally <laughs> failed getting them into this. <laughs> um, wants to go to law school, but she wants to take the Lisa Sanders approach to it. You know, like, how was I able to get into Yale Medical School with a, with a, a B-plus, A-minus average in my pre-med courses? I'm different, and I had a good story. And so my daughter, who uh, feels like she's, she, she's never been a straight-A student because she, she's like me. What she's interested in is easy to study. What she's not interested in, it's torture. <laughs> you know? So she's another A-minus, B-plus student. And so she she feels like she when she applies to law school she's gonna she wants to have a good story to tell, and she will I'm sure she will she's a really interesting cool person so yeah so kind of jumping a little bit so reflecting on fifty women at Yale 150 how do you feel about this historical moment I can't believe <laughs> that they just started le- letting women in in my lifetime. <laughs> How is it possible that they kept women out? I mean, it just seems unthinkable to me, inconceivable. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, of course, you know, so, I mean, I I think, great, you know, uh, welcome to the pool, you know, welcome to the, you know, to to what's normal. I'm sorry it took you so long to get there. But, you know, it's not like Yale is so much worse than every place else. So, I mean, it's just, who knew that, you know... (laughs) Who knew that women should be excluded or that we would be so new to all of this? It doesn't feel new to me. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned your class was the first class that had a 50% ratio between males and females. Did you feel anything special being part of that cohort? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you know, I had my best friend, uh, Wolf Nadulman, came to medicine. He was like me. Well, so... You know, I got into medical school because I was a weirdo. You know, <laughs> Yale in particular saves like 10 slots every year for the weirdos. And so my friend <laughs> Wolf was also a weirdo. He was, uh, he was a math guy who had um, worked for Sullivan Brothers. Um, and he was like, wait a second. And he always had the weird take on whatever fact it was, which was what was great about being around him. He's like, wait a second, if this is the first time you've had 50% women and 10 years ago you had only 40% women, is it that the women have gotten so much better in 10 years or are you just lowering your standards? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you know, I can't remember who was in charge of admissions at the time, but just became like speechless and apoplectic. (laughs) But it does bring up an interesting point. I mean, I think that in order to change who you're letting in, you have to change what you're looking for. And that's what he was trying to point out. But. 
interesting perspective, for sure. <laughs> That's true, yeah. So more and more, we are seeing more women pursuing education in STEM, which is really good. But when it comes to career tra- trajectory, women are still underrepresented in leadership positions in these fields. So what are your thoughts on this? And how do you think institutions like Yale can help with that? Well, because women don't have, most women don't have wives who take care of them, you know, and actually many of us are wives and have other people that we take care of, um, you know, you have to be, you can't be rigid. If you have, uh, if you have a group of people whose every need is outside of work is taken care of, the traditional job of a wife, then that's a person who can devote everything, every, literally every spare brain particle uh, and every spare moment of every day to his career. If you think that those are the only people who make good doctors, then it's going to be very hard for women to succeed in that. Um, So you have to be open to other qualities. Um, I don't think it's hard. I think that Um, In a way, STEM prepares people to be doctors poorly. You know, I mean, first of all, the way people learn science is as a series of facts. There's no uncertainty. There just is. This is how, you know, the Krebs cycle works. (laughs) You're not... Wherever the rough, raveled edges of science are where you're not really sure what's going on, those are not really part of the pre-med curriculum. So you're taught this very rigid, defined set of facts. Um, That is not how medicine works at all. You know, human beings, there are nothing but the frazzled uh, edges of not knowing. And medicine, I mean, we are so new in medicine. I mean, people talk about medicine like we've been getting better since Hippocrates. But, of course, that is not the case. You know, medicine was invented last week, you know, when you think about the long arc of history. Sure, Hippocrates did describe some diseases that we can almost recognize in modern times. But really, you know, the X-ray was invented at the end of the 19th century. The thermometer was invented at the end of the 19th century. You know, we weren't able to measure blood pressure until, you know, the 20th century. Penicillin wasn't (laughs) available until World War II. I mean, this is all last week compared to, uh, you know, the long history of medicine. So, you know, I think that we need to, that having this kind of rigid science background does not prepare you for the fact that the answer to many questions is, I don't know, or I don't know yet, or we'll have to see. That kind of uncertainty is just not part of a STEM education, and yet it's a required, it's an essential preparation for medicine. I think, that's why I think the humanities are... uh, an important part of becoming a doctor. I think, I think if to be a real pre-med, sure, you should take biology and chemistry and organic chemistry, but you should also take the novel. You should also take, because, because art is all about uncertainty and resolution. You know, if you're listening to a piece of music, you hear these themes that come together, you know, that appear and disappear and then come together. So you have this suspense that's what we call it in the arts. 
you know, we don't call it suspense in, in music, but there's a sort of a resolution of all these themes that have been in and out that you hear. In a novel, we call it suspense. You know, you have to just wait and see what happens. It teaches you to, to live with uncertainty, to really be a terrific doctor. You have to accept the amount of uncertainty that comes from, A, where we are in medicine, and B, you know, the fact that every person's body is slightly different. So I think, um, I think that having a STEM education is good. More women should do STEM, but pre-med should make room for what we know about the way medicine works so that people can deal with uncertainty. You mentioned uh, previously that you were married when you entered medical school and you touched on the traditional spousal rules of wives. Do you think that impacted how you were as a medical student or the social support that you had? What, that I was married? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge. <laughs> Huge. I would have never done this without my life partner, Jack Hitt, who is a fantastic writer and a great radio personality. He's on um, This American Life. He has his own podcast called Uncivil, which I highly recommend. <laughs> um, you know, I could have never, ever, I wouldn't have even gone to medical school without the support of somebody like that because it's, uh, it's a lonely business. So um, I wasn't, I was never lonely. And he always made me laugh. So what's better than that? Do you feel like there are any differences in how women are treated when they try to make a super big career change like you did? I don't know. I don't think that it's more common among women than men. I think it's uncommon, period, to leave one career for a completely different career. But, you know, I wasn't trying to be strange. I just was trying to <laughs> do what seemed interesting to me. And I was lucky. I mean, at the time, I wasn't married. I mean, I was married, but I w didn't, we didn't have children. I didn't have a mortgage. You know, I mean, I had, I could just walk away from a well-paying job. I had some money saved. Um, not nearly enough, <laughs> but uh, I had money saved. So I could walk away from uh, a well-paying career. And I was happy to do that because, you know, they just didn't make enough money in the world to allow me to be bored or unhappy. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about social support. Has Yale specifically given you any support in terms of the academic institution that you've received? Absolutely. Um, you know, first, you know, when I, um, I did my residency at Yale Internal Medicine under the tutelage of uh, Steve Hewitt, who is fantastic. And then he hired me afterwards, and so I just stayed um, at the primary care residency program. And when I started writing my column, I was really nervous. But Steve was great. He was like, you know, it's fine. You know, great, good job. And then um, the, head of, the chief of medicine at the time, Ralph Horwitz, who was also an absolutely terrifying human being, um, one day, about two months, three months after I had started writing my column, I was at Grand Rounds, and after Grand Rounds, they have coffee hour, and Ralph was standing there, and he called across this crowded room, Lisa, love your column, <laughs> like, and so everybody heard Aww. that Ralph loved my column, so I was like, whew. <laughs> 
So I didn't know how it would be, it would be received um, when I went up for a promotion. So I don't, you know, I'm not privy to those meetings. But um, I have published two research papers in my entire career. <laughs> I have now participated in a few more. But at the time when I was going up for becoming an associate professor, um, I had really published two peer-reviewed papers. On the other hand, I had a column. I had been writing a column for about 12 years at the time. And so, of course, it's presented to all these, you know, old white guys. Not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with being old and white, but – and one of the uh, older, whiter guys said, well, she hasn't really written anything. She hasn't really published anything. And um, one of my – one of the women on the committee who happens to be a friend of mine but also <laughs> I think, uh, an advocate for all of us said, uh, what do you mean? She publishes in the New York Times every month. He goes, oh, she gets paid for that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I was – I got promoted. So Yale has been very supportive of what I do um, and I'm, I'm grateful. You know, in general – I expected medicine – medicine really values normal. You know, they really like you to be a lot like everybody else, the same way we feel about our patients. We don't want our patients to have super special sodium. No, no. Your sodium should be in the normal range, period. <laughs> and we kind of expect our colleagues to be normal. And I was so thrilled to find that that was not the case here at Yale. I mean, maybe it was, but not in the people who, who had power over me. They were always very supportive. I actually wanted to hear about what your experience is with, is with in publishing with the New York Times and writing for them. Oh, it's been great. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I have to say, I, um, it's not like I aspired to write a column for the New York Times. Um, but when I was a medical student, I realized that there was a story that even though I had covered medicine for six or seven years, there was a story that I was seeing as a doctor that I had never heard of as a, a patient, not that I'd been a patient very often, but as a reporter. And that was a story of diagnosis, just that there was so much uncertainty surrounding it, or not always, but often enough. And I recognized that as being an extraordinary story and one that really ha wasn't told. And so um, a guy who had just gotten a job at the New York Times, who I knew, um, he had just gotten a job at the New York Times magazine, called me and, and probably a dozen other doctors and said, what can doctors write? And I said, you know, there's – we write every day. We write the same kind of article every day. It's called an H&P, a history and physical. And it tells the story of a diagnosis. And that's not a story that anybody out there is familiar with. You know, I'm not – it's not like uh, Paul Tuff, who was the editor I talked to, now a fantastic writer about education. Um, it's not like Paul said, wow, that sounds great. I never heard it. He was like, huh, that's interesting, kind of. <laughs> but so we talked about it for several months. And, and then finally um, I said, well, why don't you give it a shot? So I did. <laughs> That's really cool. How did it transition from going from the New York Times written column to the now aired uh, Netflix diagnosis 
series. Well, that's totally different. <laughs> you know, I only in my column I only write about solved cases mm-hmm. because that's that's the real. That's otherwise it's like telling a detective story when you still don't know who done it. You know, that's great, but it isn't a detective story. It's just you know, it's a headline. It's not. It's not. Um, so the Netflix thing had something that I don't have in my column. It had time to follow people, right? So that we could, we found, it wasn't easy, but we found these people who were looking for a diagnosis. And I presented them in my column. And so we used crowdsourcing as a way to sort of a metaphor for generating a differential diagnosis. Um, And so, you know, we would put all the suggestions together and give them to the patient and try to get and and the doc, and the patient's doctor and try to get them to think about it in a rational and sensible way um, more or less successful than that. <laughs> um, so it was it was very different you know I mean but it was exciting you know it was exciting it was great I was working with some really great people I mean the diff- one of the differences is, is that I write all my columns my editors are important, but I write my columns. Television is a much more collaborative job. I mean, it just, you know, it takes a lot of people. And when I was a television producer, I was in the editing room. I was at every shoot. I saw every, you know, piece of footage. I heard every soundbite, everything. I knew all of it. This time, I I couldn't do that. And I, I wasn't that interested in doing that. You know, <laughs> um, you know I've been there, done that. <laughs> These are people who love this still. Go up, go for it. And, you know, it's funny. They told me from the beginning that they wanted me to like this and that they thought that, you know, that I should help them shape it. And, you know, maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't. You don't know. People say a lot of things. Um, and uh, you can't get to be a grown-up without realizing that sometimes people say things and they don't really mean them. <laughs> or they think they mean it, but they don't. But I looked at the first cut of the first uh, episode, and it was awful. But, you know, what I wish that I had done was to say, this is such an important first start. This, there's so much great here. She's such a great character, and you've gotten her— and, but no, no, what I did was like 10 minutes in, I went like, no, no, this is awful. And of course, the producer, Alex Braverman, who's just a fantastic storyteller and a fabulous producer, I could just see in his face that I had horribly hurt his feelings. And of course, I really respect him, and I felt remorseful immediately. But, you know, he can't unsay things. Um, and... He said, I really need to understand what it is you're seeing here that's distressing you. And we had many, many, many long conversations about this. And I have to say, I, all that just went away. And after that, you know, they, were all, they totally got me and got what I wanted to, what did I wanted medicine to look like. Because I thought it was true. I mean, it's not like I had this fantasy about what it looks like. I think that if you show it honestly, then, you know, then that's going to be something that people haven't seen before. Um, 
I was also worried about the crowdsourcing. I just thought, oh, my God, what if it turns into this sort of big gimmick? But really, it wasn't. It was just it was something we did. It structured the beginning of the show. And then we followed them out from there. And I thought that was really great. They could have I feel like they could have done a really cheesy sort of instant gratification kind of television, but they didn't do that. I mean, they spent real time with these families. They got some really important moments with these families. They really showed what it felt like from a family perspective um, to live with this kind of uncertainty. I wish that we could have done that with doctors. Doctors also just hate and suffer with uncertainty. You know, we all hate that. But, you know, there were very few doctors who would let us see that part of them. You know, they just, you know, and I understand that, but, you know, that's why we see a lot of uncertainty on the part of the patients and their family. There's the same level of uncertainty at the doctor end, but we were very rarely able to show that. I would say in Sadie and in Willie, we got some hint of that, Um, but the rest of the time, you know, you know us. We like to doctors. We like to know what we like to look like. We know what we're talking about, even if we're kind of only ninety percent there. Yeah, for sure. You have to present yourself professionally so your patients, you know, feel less anxious. Maybe. But I think that's not true. I think that I have always told my patients when I'm uncertain because they should know. You know, one of the things that I learned to do very early on in my career is if I'm not sure, or even if I feel sure, I say, this is what I expect to happen next. And this is sort of the time course. This is how long it should take you to start feeling better. Here's what I don't expect. And give them a list. I don't expect you to get worse. I don't expect you to feel short of breath. I don't, you know, just a whole bunch. Because I said, if you feel any of those things, that means that I'm wrong. And you're getting worse and not better, and you need to let me know. And I think that kind of honesty about the level of uncertainty that you have or the possibility of a wrong diagnosis is essential in medicine. Do you feel like it took a lot of time for you to get to that point where you're able to be honest and not feel bad about it? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was a grown-up when Mm. I came to this, and I felt like, you know, I never— because of my experience in television, I always felt very comfortable asserting a certain amount of authority. There are a lot of young women especially. I was not, you know, I was a middle-aged woman by the time I went to medical school. So um, I didn't have to deal with, as a doctor, I didn't have to deal with um, the kind of we don't take you very seriously because you're just a young woman and what do you know? I don't have to deal with that. I know there are colleagues that do. I know that, you know, it's you're up, you know, when you're 26 and you're trying to tell somebody who's 50 what's up, sometimes it doesn't work as well. Men know, men are taught from very early in their interactions how to assert themselves. And I think it's women have to figure out what that is. First of all, it's more complicated. You know, I mean, um, Lots of men have very strong, bad feelings about having women tell them what to do. So you have to figure out how to get around that. You know, I mean, there's lots of barriers to that kind of um, honest communication that I didn't have to face. I had already worked it out with the cameraman and the sound men and the talent. You know, I had already figured out sort of how to have a certain amount of authority 
and just exercise it in a way that I hoped wasn't offensive. <laughs> um, so I, I, that wasn't hard for me. Uh, I, I just felt once I saw that there was this uncertainty, I felt like it had to be outed. Do you have advice for currently young women who potentially face that kind of scenario where they're not taken very seriously? I think you shouldn't let it ruffle your own sense of who you are. You need to recognize that it's not your problem. It's somebody else's problem. Nevertheless, it's your problem because you have to deal with it. <laughs> <clears throat> but I, as long as, I mean, I think you're going to be fine as long as you don't internalize somebody else's sense uncertainty about your worth. So that's the first step. And then you just have to figure out, mostly through trial and error, how to talk, how to act, how to assert. But you also, I think that all young doctors don't understand that when, that there's a reason it's called the doctor role. We are playing a part. We are shaping that part. But it, when, it's not like it's us, right? It's our role. And so just tweaking that role to let it have a kind of bulletproof quality, um, you know, I mean, I think you have to figure it out. Um, but you will because you're smart and you got into medical school. So, you know, you're going to make it work. And I, I see uh, – I know that there are times – I mean, most of the women I see have figured it out, which is not to say that men – or women don't do inappropriate things uh, <laughs> or say inappropriate things. And you just have to deal with it and move on. You know, it's not you. Again, it's not your problem. It's somebody else's problem. But you have to deal with it because it's happening to you. Awesome. So thank you so much for joining us today. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or touch on that we didn't talk about? <laughs> God, I feel like we talked about everything. <laughs> Is there anything left? <laughs> Not for this episode, maybe a future one. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much, Dr. Sanders. So there are many people behind this podcast that you'll never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for the YJPM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YBGM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Harworth and Devon Walsh. And finally, thanks to your... Thanks to you for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at ygbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Thank you.